0: Welcome to the In Awe Podcast, where we amplify women and empower a community through the mission and their message. I am your host, Sarah Johnson, English teacher and school principal turned author and entrepreneur, living my own leap of faith on a mission to teach masses. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook at PatSarahsa Johnson. Be sure to subscribe to the In awe Podcast so you can join me each week as I feature women who will leave us all in awe of their impact on our world. Welcome to the In A Podcast solo episode for December 2022. If you are a regular listener of this show, you're very aware that I have taken a brief hiatus, given some important pressure points in my life and a very intentional decision to make some space while I navigate through some personal challenges associated with my mother's health. I know that I had promised nothing (laughs) that I didn't know if I'd be back in December, but I just also know that. We have a mission in our message, and the timing of everything is exactly what it's supposed to be. So, I am excited to share with you this episode for the month, and I know you will understand why it is the one that we're able to share. If you are new to the Ina podcast, welcome. I'm so grateful that you joined today. Whatever brought you here, I know that joy has something for you, and I am so excited to have you as a part of the community. I also want to tell you all that this month I kind of silently celebrated four years of launching wonderful content and beautiful stories, and Joy's episode will mark... um, the culmination of this year, but definitely not the end of this podcast. I am so excited to continue forth in this mission for my own life. And if you haven't been able to check out the over 130 other incredible interviews, hopefully you'll take the time now to do do that. I am in awe of every single guest that I've ever had on this podcast. And today's guest is absolutely no exception. Joy Kelly has been an educator for more than 25 years. She has served as a high school teacher, 7-12 through 12 parochial school principal, and a public high school associate principal, where she was named the Iowa 2016 Associate Principal of the Year. She served as a principal in a large comprehensive public high school and has also served as a head of school for a pre-K-12 through 12 Catholic school system. Having been an administrator in public and parochial schools, Joy brings extensive knowledge and understanding of student achievement, community building, teacher leadership, and managing discipline issues. Joy believes the vitality and success of any school rests in the culture of the school community. It is her belief that positive student achievement occurs as a result of the safe and supportive relationships developed among the adults in the school and within the students and their families. Along with Jimmy Casas, Joy co-authored Handle with Care, Managing Difficult Situations in Schools with Dignity and Respect. Joy is the proud mother of five children and believes her journey with them makes her a better school leader to the students and staff with whom she works every day. In this episode, we discuss what life events impacted the change in Joy's career recently. She shares what she has found healing in the midst of family illness and loss, and Joy shares a holiday message that can help us all reflect on how we are living our own lives. I found this interview to be profoundly important for my life right now, and I just know that that's going to have the same impact different but important impact for you i also know that you'll start to hear the threads of why this particular interview is nice and perfectly able to stand alone here in december a programming note we did double the time that i usually do for an interview knowing that this would be the only one and also that joy had so much to share with us our guiding quote for the month is find out where joy resides and give it a voice far beyond singing for to miss the joy is to miss all And this is by Robert Louis Stevenson. Friends, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been kind of hard to find the joy recently. And I'm so grateful that this interview with Joy Kelly Uh, allowed me to amplify it far beyond singing and that we can remember that when we miss the joy in the moments we miss it all and we're and we're not going to do that so joy story will be vulnerable it will be open it's going to bring us on a roller coaster and i'm so glad that you joined welcome it is with deep honor and gratitude that i share with you my friend joy kelly's in awe of joy story Welcome, my friend, my beautiful friend, Joy Kelly, to the In a Podcast. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. Welcome.
1: Good morning. So great to talk with you.
0: I am beaming in a way that I think I haven't in weeks, so that must mean that <laughs> this conversation was meant to happen today for both of us and hopefully for the listeners. Joy, I wanted to make sure that we have an opportunity before we dive into your incredible story Just to share a little bit with the listeners about how you and I are connected, I think we've known each other for at least two years now, Um, connected through our collaborative work with Jay Casas and Associates, and I just have to say that you have always been one of the most refreshing people to connect with. You just have this really powerful spirit about you, but like mixed in with this incredible story that nobody would guess just by looking at you if you're not willing to share it. It's just few people in my life that I can literally pinpoint our conversations, remember where they happen, And it was the first time you and I met. We were at, I don't know, like a Baskin Robbins or some ice cream, because that's what we have to do after yes. we have dinner <laughs> with the team. And you had shared with me part of the story you're going to share today. And I just remember looking at you and thinking, you're a person that I want in my life and I want to know more about. And so I just wanted you to hear that. And I'm so grateful that you're going to share pieces of you with the in community today.
1: That's so sweet. Thank you, Sarah. It's been super fun getting to know you and spending time with you. And, you know, it's kind of the beauty of life is, you know, people come into your life at different stages. And it's a wonderful thing as long as you have an open heart and an open mind. And so thank you for being open to my presence.
0: Oh my goodness, yes. And I have to also tell you this, I didn't tell you, but when I was uh, relaunching the In Awe podcast, we kicked back up this year after taking a year hiatus, I was coming up with series features and who I wanted to have, and I literally titled this month In Awe of Joy, praying that you would be on it.
1: (laughs) Wow. This worked out perfectly then.
0: (laughs) It did, especially since as listeners and you know, you're going to be the only interview featured. So I just feel like that's really special and I wanted you to hear that too
1: great thank you
0: all right so our series quote for the month is uh, find out where joy resides and give it a voice far beyond singing for to miss the joy is to miss all this is robert Louis stevenson and i just know that your story is going to highlight and illustrate this kind of weaving throughout as we go but before we jump in would you just share with the listeners i talked about your bio at the beginning but like what's your current context what have you got going on right now
1: Well, I'm in a weird holding pattern at the moment. I have been so blessed and so fortunate to serve as an educator for nearly 30 years in the classroom, as a coach, as a mentor, as an associate principal, as a principal, and most recently as a head of school, and have loved every piece about being a school leader and working with students and staff and families. Because I do believe the passport for anybody uh, is the education field, and just being able to. Witness and participate, and hopefully, you know, in some way lend a hand and enhance somebody's learning experience is just such a gift. So, for nearly 30 years, I've been doing that. However, in this last year, actually just this last summer, my mother entered hospice in July. My uh, sweet mama, at 87 years of age, entered hospice, and my former husband um, was diagnosed with bladder cancer here in the spring. He was out living in New York. Our younger son plays basketball at Siena College and John was out there uh, supporting Michael and um, he got sick and I offered for him to come back here. Uh, We're home to the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, which has been uh, incredibly helpful to our family over a number of years. And I really felt like that would be Great care for him, health care, and also for us to be able to support and care for him through what I thought was going to be, you know, a pretty major surgery and uh, recovery and help him get back on his feet and back to New York. And none of it turned out that way. And um, we got word in August after he did have major surgery and the pathology report came back that. John has a rare aggressive form of bladder cancer, and after one round of chemotherapy, which darn near did his kidneys in, we tried immunotherapy, and after one round of that, his liver was mad, and it was very clear that we were not going to be able to continue on. And so I made the decision to step down from my position on August 22nd, made the decision actually the week before staff came back for the start of the school year, and It was not a hard decision to make because I knew myself well enough to know that John had been so critically ill at that time after his surgery. I have one gear when it comes to work and I have one gear when it comes to my family. And I was afraid that what would get squeezed was the time commitment that I had made that every day I would see my mom and I wasn't willing to let that, you know, get squeezed. And so I made the decision to step down and resign and where I work, the people were so wonderful, so gracious. The board, the superintendent, very supportive and you know, said, just take a leave of absence, we understand and whatever you need to do. And the problem is I know myself well enough to know that I wouldn't have actually taken a leave of absence. I would have felt responsible. I would have felt I needed to respond and make sure that I was doing that as well. And so I made the decision to step away completely And I cannot tell you the number of times here this fall that I haven't thought to myself, I would have lost my blessed mind if I had been trying to work. And so spent, you know, every day making sure I saw my mom and her last 48 hours, all seven of us, I'm one of seven children, we gathered with mom for nearly two days and she died peacefully on October 5th. We buried mom in a beautiful Catholic ceremony, Catholic mass and celebration in Dubuque, Iowa on uh, October 10th. And on October 12th, they took John back to chemotherapy, back to the oncologist, and decided at that point, he decided to stop uh, treatment altogether, and John entered hospice on October 17th. And so I am a full-time caregiver for my former husband, and that's what I'm doing right now. I know. Who would have thought? Not me in a main years, let me tell you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Who would have thought? I just... Have to say, as I was listening to you with all of these details that are just blazed into your brain right now, mm-hmm. dates and people and timelines. I, I just can't help but be struck by when you said you you can't take a leave of absence. And I got to thinking that's it's because you're not absent. You're not an absent person. And for 30 mm-hmm. years, as you said, you committed fully to engage in that leadership. And you are an insanely incredible leader. And so I know that that happens in all aspects of your full life. We definitely can peel that apart a little bit more as we go through your story. But just the, the courage that it took to say no and to allow those competing priorities to simmer up to your brain and let you make that decision is really powerful. And I think that it's really important that somebody heard that message from you today.
1: I must confess, I was not overly reflective about it. It was a little bit more like, okay, something's got to give. I'm a fairly, I'm I'm a pretty decisive person. Like what needs to be done? What need? what's happening? What's the best options go. And I also don't look back, you know, because I know I'm going to have the rest of my life to work, you know, but I also know I'm never going to get this time back. Who's to say, but the fact that I was holding my mother's hand when she died, I'll never get that back, and I'm so grateful that I had that. The fact that I'm with John every day and can do whatever he needs at any time—I'm never going to get that back. And it's really been a, a gift to me as well, just to be able to be able to do this. But also, you know, for those out there in the divorce land, you know, you know, you—I know, told Sarah earlier, you know, you haven't really lived if you haven't been divorced. And honestly, you know. Our story just very quickly is that a milk dairy tanker pulled out in front of John and my mother-in-law and three of my children in 2006, and it resulted in the frontal lobe traumatic brain injury in John. And so, you know, it forever changed him and it forever changed our lives. And six months after the accident, the neurology team met with John and me and were very candid and said, you know, he's permanently profoundly disabled. He's not going to be able to work. It's the executive function portion of his brain, judgment, impulse control, emotional regulation, planning, organizing, all those things. And they were very candid and said, the divorce rate is very high uh, in marriages with this kind of injury. And it is most often the one with the brain injury who pursues it. And I immediately was like, well, that's not going to happen to us. And that's exactly what happened to us. I suppose I could have spent a lot of time and energy being You know, really bitter about things, and not to say that there weren't times that I was pretty broken. But if you've been through a divorce, there's a degree of painfulness there that you can't kind of describe. And I do feel like John coming back home and being able to care for him has really been healing for both of us and for our children. On the outside, certainly, John he's always attended. He's always been with us for the holidays. He's always been welcome to be around. We've cared for our children together and jointly and loved them together and jointly, but it changes a little bit who you are. And this journey has helped us all to kind of, you know, take even more healing in the midst of
0: illness. It's as I'm listening to you, I am on such a roller coaster joy (laughs) because I know I can imagine listeners are feeling the same, just like this serious, serious uh, life event that led to, you know, these different paths of your life that you would have predicted that's kind of circling back to now. And I I feel like that joy piece of feeling the joy of it, you hit on it so well when you talk about being able to be present right now, you know, even amidst this challenge of him having this hospice situation, which is, you know, terminal, you know, you don't have time and you're making the most of it. And I love that you dove into that story, and so can we just peel apart a couple of things? Sure. Uh, so two thousand and six, it sounded like so yes. you know it's been it's been a good decade and a half, right, of that reality. I'm trying yes. to do the math in my head. I mean, you're talking almost 20 years
1: mm-hmm.
0: of that reality yeah. and raising children.
1: <laughs> yeah, our children, we have five children,
0: um, yeah, not just one or two, there's five. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, you know what I say about that when people are always like, five kids, oh my gosh, how did you do it? I'll say, does your one child take up all your free time? Well, yes. I'm like, well, then more can't do anything else. You know, it's even if you have one child, it takes up all your time and energy and your devotion. So we have five children who are currently uh, 27, 26, 25, 23, and 22. So in 2006, they were all little ones, you know, and actually, a year before the accident, 2005, John had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so we had gone through a, you know, a year of him having cancer, found out on Valentine's Day, 2005, that he had cancer. And so we kind of, you know, you think that's going to be your biggest crisis, you know, and, and you know, in married life, just be sure this in any relationship or partnership, there's going to be crises that hit, you know, you just don't know what it's going to be. And, you find out what you're made of, you're made of individually, and you find out what you're made of as a partnership. And we had certainly weathered plenty of storms as a couple, miscarriages, difficulty getting pregnant, the cancer, the accident, the brain injury, you know, even the divorce. But you have to continue to weather those things together. And so, so we had been through cancer in 2005. And then you think that's the worst thing you're ever going to face. And then There's nothing like a brain injury, although I've learned over time that even though, like our situation is a frontal lobe traumatic brain injury, but when you talk with other people, whether it's Parkinson's disease, alcoholism, substance abuse, depression, mental health issues, whatever it might be, the diagnoses are very different, but the impact on loved ones and families is very, very eerily similar. It's that living that life with that unpredictability, you know, not quite sure what's going to happen next. How are you going to be able to respond? Trying not to live a life on eggshells, but bracing yourself, you know, how do you navigate it with children and and helping them through. And all the while, you know, making sure that they always and forever know that both parents love them, both parents care for them. And I'll tell you, Sarah, you know, I can't tell you the number of times as my kids were growing up when things would would have a, there'd be a falling out of some sort, you know, with John's behavior as a result of the brain injury. And I would say, you just need to remember dad never asked for any of this either. And they would get so mad at me. Stop saying that. You always say that to us, you know. And I'm so grateful I did because as young adults, they have been pure gold with John and Their love for them. And it's been interesting watching John kind of try to figure out what messages he wants to leave for the kids and for my kids to figure out, you know, need to get home. What if I'm not there when dad dies and trying to talk through all that with them? And I've been able to say to both John and the kids separately Look, there's not a single thing that dad doesn't know about the way you feel about him. And there's not a single thing that you don't know about the way dad feels about you we just have to be on this journey and not worry about those kinds of things and that's the beauty of being a open loving family that's rooted in being open and being scared and being vulnerable and being forgiving and that's you know kind of helped us
0: it's so beautiful and one thing that i'm struck by is that you always kind of make it sound like, well, this is just normal. Like this is natural. But do you know, (laughs) not everybody would be able to function the way you have joy to be able to reframe, not only for yourself, because your heart was broken too. I mean, your, your husband that you have this beautiful relationship with, and we're blessed with these beautiful children completely transformed in front of your eyes. And though I've seen plenty of people move through that, uh, as you said, the fallout, the impact is the same, whether it's you know brain injury or addiction or all the other things, unable to be able to raise the children in the same way with the same positive light, and the same focus, and so I just want to tell you that I see that as remarkable.
1: Well, my DNA is Pat Kelly. That is my DNA. My mom, you know, raised seven of us by herself. My dad was an alcoholic. And she raised seven of us by herself. And, you know, one of the things when the accident happened and the brain injury and all the fallout from that, and John wasn't going to be able to work. And of all the things that kind of spooked me a little bit, one thing I was not afraid about at all was raising the kids because I knew I could do it. And because I had that model, you know, and, uh, but I also had the model of a mom who kept the door open all the time, who, loved and cared for my dad, you know, even when he made it difficult and so forth. And that's obviously a very different situation than with John. But I do believe this. And when I watch people who go through this bitterness of divorce and this hostility and how they put kids in these situations, and I think, good God, you know what? Your children are going to be adults a lot more years than they're going to be kids. And they're going to know who made life easier, who made it harder. Who compromised, who tried to stand the ground, who tried to be kind and who tried to be right and have the last word, they're gonna know that. And that's one of the things I'm grateful for is that our kids don't have that with either of us. But you have to be intentional about that and you have to, you know, you have to take the high road, you know, because I firmly believe it's far more important to be kind than it is to be right.
0: It's uh, it's so precious, too, because as we're kind of unpacking the story and spending so much time thinking about your mom and John, how she influenced you is really having this beautiful connection. And I just, her spirit's with you, you know, it always has Um, been, and she's just (laughs) helping um, you through this next space.
1: That's the hardest part. And those of you who have, you know, I talked to my mom, you know, prior to the Alzheimer's and really, really until about the last. Oh, six or eight months of her life. I talked to mom two, three times a day. You know, I talked to her every morning on my way to work. If there was a snowball's chance that I ever got out of the building to get some lunch, you know, I would talk to her then. But I definitely talked to her either on my way home or before going to bed at night. Mom was where you went when you had news to share or the world was harsh. And that's probably the biggest adjustment is just the number of times that I've wanted to talk to her about kind of what's happening and what goes on each day but you know when you say do you understand how rare it is when my mom even like the last year when we had some decisions we had to make for mom we did everything possible to keep her. my mom was fiercely independent just fiercely independent uh she'll take care of herself she worked until she was 83 i mean she she had a paper out with her last job (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I but, love that. Funny, And my mom was a bartender our whole life, you know, and I spoke at her funeral and I said, you know, my mom's ministry was over the bar. She, yeah, she administered, of course, but she also provided a ministry. She was a listener when people didn't have anyone to listen. She kept people's confidences like no other. I mean, she was an unbelievable vault, not just for us kids, but for other people who were sitting at the bar and people who came into her life. And She was just generous, she always had very little, but whatever little she had, she always shared. So our goal was to keep her as independent as possible. And it became obvious, you know, down the home stretch, we were making, taking turns, people driving, you know, I lived at that point, you know, an hour and 40 minutes from mom, but we were making trips among my siblings every day that somebody was with mom every day. And before we moved her here to Iowa city, but anyhow, one of the things that we kind of got down the home stretch was all the decisions we made, whether it was over Zoom or on phone calls or group checks, you know, it's a family. We were on the same page with each other all the way through. And, you know, there's a piece of us that when all was said and done, we're kind of like proud of ourselves. Like, gosh, so proud of us that we stuck together. We went together. We didn't have any bad feelings. We didn't have any outbursts or fights or arguments or anything. And then you kind of take a step back and think, not a whole lot to be proud there. She expected that of us. She absolutely (laughs) expected that of us. And so you do the things that you're expected to do. And she expected us to love each other through this. You know, when hospice called and said, Hey, you know, we're starting the active dying phase. And when I let all my siblings know, and, you know, I, I said, I did exactly what a Kelly typically does. I bawled my eyes out first. And then I got in the car and drove 10 minutes over to the care center and kind of pulled myself together to walk into that room, you know, putting on a strong face for mom. (laughs) And when I walked in, mom just reached her arms out to me and she pulled me close and she patted my head and she knew what was happening and I knew what was happening. And true to form, you know, she was going to comfort us all the way to the kingdom and she did and it was just so beautiful and i have never ever in my life had an experience when mom died of being completely and utterly relieved and completely and utterly shattered at the same time
0: right that complication of connection you know that to love something and to lose it and if you lose it you <laughs> know you loved it and all of those beautiful pieces. And thank you for giving us that moment. I'm trying so hard not to break down listening to it because it's so joyful.
1: It really, it really truly is. So I should tell your listeners, I'm the first girl after five boys, which is why, (laughs) which is why my name is Joy. Um, I always tell people, I'm so glad they didn't name me finally. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But and I have loved my name my entire life. And I think when you name children, it's such a gift to them and to go through my whole life and to love what my name is and to be able to always have in my heart and my mind and in my memory, my mom calling my name. You know, that's a beautiful thing.
0: It really is. And I'm so glad you you shared that because that is the reason I want to do this month instead of another. So... <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Like> yeah,
0: <that. laughs> so beautiful. I also want to share too because one of the things that I just love—that's not only coming through in this interview, but just who you are always—is this deep sense of, and it's like pragmatism, but also a connection to to faith and to that element of yourself, uh, because you are so funny, Joy. You are one of the most hilarious people I know, and you're- uh... And I'm
1: the least funny person in my family, my siblings. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'll tell you, I am the least funny member of my family. The rest of them are hilarious.
0: I can't even imagine by that measure what it's like for your gatherings, but I have to share because I'm the youngest of seven, and as I shared with you prior to this interview, we're going through some things with my mom right now, and listeners know that because I had to take some time off, and- I do very fearfully worry about this next chapter for my own family because, you know, all I've ever seen is families fall apart when the matriarch passes or the patriarch or however that rolls. And and that's that's been true in both sides of my family, where I've watched both of my parents suffer from sibling rivalries and sibling descent when that happens. And I just hearing you makes me feel like, well, maybe we can be that family that also doesn't disintegrate through that? Because I don't want that to happen to us.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I do think what one thing that you kind of learn, or at least I did through our process, both with my dad, when my dad died, which was a very different experience because, you know, being a lifelong alcoholic and not being very involved. And that was kind of a crazy journey too, because, and God loved John. Um, you know, this was obviously before the accident. My dad died actually six months before the accident. But a couple of years before that, he had gotten vascular dementia and was living in Milwaukee at the time. And we had a bit a care center up there. And I came home after one of the times I had been up there and said to John, like, I can't do this. I can't have him there. I said, he needs us closer. And I remember John just saying, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to bring him here and I want to bring him home. And he didn't bat an eye. John said, well, then that's what we're going to do because that's who John was. And we did that. And we brought him home that was another chance for all of us to kind of have a little bit of healing with dad, you know, but when dad died, you know, we kind of learned a little bit at that time and we stayed close together through all that, but mom was still alive too, you know, and you're kind of wanting to make sure mom is okay with all the decisions that you're making, you know, even though they weren't married anymore or anything like that. But I remember when I brought dad home, I kind of had this little bit of a, internal feeling like maybe some of my siblings couldn't understand or were upset that I made the decision to bring dad home like I kind of felt like there was nobody said it It and it's probably me running with it a little bit more like you know am I somehow betraying mom by helping dad and I remember calling mom and I said mom I just got to talk this through with you I said you know I'm kind of getting this vibe this little feeling and I said you know I'm gonna bring dad home but I said I don't want you to ever in any way feel like somehow I'm betraying you by helping dad. And she didn't bat an eye. She said, Oh, honey, she said, do you have any idea how comforting it is to me? If this is what you're willing to do for your dad, I'm going to be just fine. Oh, You know, it was a beautiful response. It was, it was a beautiful response and it was like, so relieved for me. It was such relief. Like, okay, we're good. And everybody was very involved helping to take care of dad too, you know, but everybody just has a different feel about it. But one thing through mom and dad both, and as your family goes through this, that I would say is, you know, people's egos need to get pretty small. And at the same time, you have to be mindful that each child, every child in the family has a different relationship with whether it's dad or mom, you know, everybody has a different relationship and that really needs to be respected. So if one sibling feels really strongly about something that you're sort of like, doesn't matter to me, let it be. If one sibling's kind of, and even if it comes to the point where like, well, we're not really sure how this is gonna look, you know, we kind of feel differently about this. Then you kind of keep hanging in there, you know, until you kind of, everybody can walk away saying, yeah, I'm okay with that. We can live with this decision. But as soon as you start having winners and losers, everybody loses. And so it's making sure that everybody says, speak up. You know, if you're not comfortable with this decision, we need everybody to say that because then we got to stay at the bargaining table here and keep talking until we can all walk away and be okay with that. And I think when people are willing to do that, it works out okay.
0: Always leading, Joy Kelly. Always leading. <laughs> I don't know about that. that. You are. It's just such a, a wise framing of all of that because, you know, every family's different. Every scenario is different. But what you just said really just ties back to treating people well you know, yeah. and yes. validating who they are. And and not like I want to segue too far away from all of this, but I think it ties so perfectly to your the book that you wrote, as, you know, Handle With Care. And the messages inside of there are pieces that you carried into the school context, but are so applicable to everything you're talking about right now.
1: We did that well ahead of mom. I don't remember when that came out, actually. I can't remember. But <laughs> we did that maybe 21 See, it seems like a lifetime ago. It hasn't been that long, but a yeah. lot has happened since then. But Jimmy Casas and you and Jimmy, you know, you and I both love and care for Jimmy. Jimmy and I worked together for 13 years and his family and my family have been close for years and he has been after me for years, you know, to write a book. And, you know, when you're raising young children and running here and running there, just there was never really a right time. And so I was able to do that with him. And really what I wanted to focus on in that book, and he agreed, was helping adults and educators at the time. But if you read the book, it really is helpful as parents too, mm-hmm. because it's finding a language to work through issues and then finding more and more, it maybe as I get older or I see more people in conflict, is it's generally never that people don't care about each other, but we don't use a language or a tone that's really saying... Okay, I'm not really sure I see it the way you do, but I want to keep talking about this until we can get to a place that we're both okay with, as opposed to just saying, you know, I always say there's this thing, you know, people say, well, I was just brutally honest about it. Well, you know, sometimes that means you're probably more brutal than honest. And, you know, how's that going to work out? And usually it doesn't work out very well. And so trying to help people. And educators in this particular situation, especially when it comes to student discipline, you know, what do we kind of get in power struggles over? What do we, as adults, sometimes have to be right and have the last word, you know? Where do we kind of poke the bear where we could, you know, bring a different spirit to the conversation or to our approach with them? And that is not to say that I have handled every situation correctly. Believe you me, I have not. I have had to eat crow on more than one occasion. When I speak, I talk about a situation I had years ago. We had lanyards and IDs, and the kids had to wear lanyards and IDs around their neck. And, of course, every child wore them everywhere except where they were supposed to be worn. And I would stand in the hallway and say five million times a day, could you please put your lanyard and ID on? Put your lanyard and ID on, please. And I'd just say it as politely as a million times, and I was always worried my head would swivel off. And there was wrong, one young man that I, you know, would constantly like. He was like it was his job to walk by me every day to make sure he knew that I knew he wasn't wearing it properly, but that I also had to address it. He walked into the main office one morning, and educators out there know, you know, everybody makes about ten thousand decisions before eight a.m. You know, we make more decisions on our way to work than most people do. You know, in a week, I was in the middle of making ten main decisions, and this young man walked into the office and said, "Miss Kelly." And I looked up, but without any regard for anything, he, of course, didn't have his Lanyard ID on correctly. And I said, please put your Lanyard ID on. And his face turned all red. and He stormed out of the office and walked away. Mm. And I finished up what I was dealing with and went into my office. And I thought to myself, he has never come into the main office. Mm. I bet he didn't come here to talk to me about the Lanyard ID. <laughs> so I, I looked up his schedule. He was in chemistry and went upstairs go to the classroom and you know how you stand at the door and you kind of make motion with your finger like, come here, please. He looked right at me and shook his head no in front of everybody. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I deserved it. So I walked into the classroom, walked right up to him and kind of leaned down close to him. And I said, if you would do me a favor, please and step out in the hallway with me. I owe you an apology. And he got right up and came out with me. And I said, I want to apologize for not being a very good listener. I'm going to guess you didn't come to talk to me about the lanyard and ID, but I was in the middle of other things and I was not being a very good listener and I apologize. Do you know how many children never have an adult apologize to them? And it was just like, the, you just saw the world wash away and then they proceeded to tell me what he needed and we talked through it, and worked through it. And not only, you know, was that important, it was important to apologize. It was all the good and right things to do. I never had an issue with that kid in the lanyard and ID ever again. <laughs> because it became about us as people, it became yes. about respect. He did st- still thought the rule was stupid, perfectly fine, but he knew that I respected him enough to say I'm sorry.
0: It strikes me so beautifully that of all the examples that you could pull from, I know there are thousands. You know um, that that one you focus so much on your actions and your. Reactions and your way of rectifying it that we didn't even know what it was he needed to talk to you about at all. <laughs> like it didn't have to be this, it didn't have to be this life shattering thing or any, and it could have been his perception on any one of a million things. But that story is so highlighting of your main message, which is just to, you know, treat people with care and listen and hear what they need. And I agree, you know, too often, especially in school settings we get so caught up in rules and compliance and, you know, especially at were you the assistant principal at the time?
1: Yes. Yeah. Was okay, yeah right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so, you know, all of those things that perceive to have to be what you're supposed to do mm-hmm. versus what we actually do when we see mm-hmm. whole children in front of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just love that story and that illustration. But and it's I also a lesson. It. Yeah.
1: It's also a lesson in like, you learn over time, whether you're a, a parent or a principal, like make things make sense to kids. Like, so for example, you know, we had a no hat rule, couldn't wear hats, couldn't wear sweatshirt, you know, hoodies in the building. And rather than telling the kids all the time, you can't do that, you can't do that, don't do that, don't do that. You know, I had a student who kind of kept skirting around. I'd see him in the hallway, I'd have a hood up and say, Hey, can you put your hood down, please? And then I'd see him around the corner five minutes later, the hood back up, you know, hey, put your hood down, please. then by the third time in the day, I'd say, come here, please. And then I'd say, look, I don't feel like this is even about the hood anymore. Now I feel like it's an issue of respect. And what I'm trying to figure out is if I've said or done something that has treated you disrespectfully, and that's why this is the response I'm getting, please tell me because I don't know it. But if I haven't done something, then let's talk about what this is about. And really what it almost always ends up being, like, it's a stupid rule. I think it's a stupid rule. I'm like, okay. And then when I go and say, can I explain to you why the rule exists? And then I'll explain. And then what I would always say to them is, and when you walk away from this conversation, you think, you know, Miss Kelly, you offered that explanation, but I still don't agree with it. And I still think you need to look at it differently. Come back and talk to me. This isn't like a one and done. Come back and say to me, hey, Ms. Kelly, I'd like to talk about this further. And that's the thing about student voice is so important or children's voice. You know, when you really listen to them, I'll tell you what, they have way better ideas than we do in so (laughs) many ways. And they see things differently. Like I might be focused on what's our curriculum looking like? And they're like, hey, lady, do you know that the fourth floor bathroom overflows all the time? Like, is anybody going to fix that? No, I'm not in the boys bathroom. So I don't know that, you know, but you have to give a platform where kids can tell you from their lens, you know, and if you're a leader, how are you getting that lens from your stakeholders, whether it's your staff or your community or, you know, your students, how are you finding out from their lens what their experience is with the culture of your school? You have to ask and be open. And that's the thing about feedback. You know, feedback is kind of traditionally very top down, employer to employee, parent to child, teacher to student, principal to staff. And when you start letting it flow the other way, student to teacher, staff to principal, child to parent, and sibling to sibling, and staff to staff, when you start letting it flow other ways, you really kind of get a real true feedback. And really true feedback is this, we can't get better as principals, as partners, as parents, if we're not, or as institutions, if we're not willing to hear a little bad news. And feedback has to be saying, I'm willing to hear a little bad news so that we can get better.
0: I appreciate that, um, that you would go down that path with me and listeners could hear all that wisdom because it is so important and transferable, as you said. And clearly, you've seen really great models of leaders, of parenting, and then you've now been able to become that and be a model for others. And I just mm-hmm. – I really love that about you and I love that light about you and I love who you are, Joy Kelly. I
1: love you, <laughs> just Sarah <everything> Johnson. <laughs> This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network, Better Today, Better Tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Or I did want to share this because it is the holiday season, and I know everybody's in the busy and the hustle and bustle, and you know there is a silent night coming at the end of this Advent season, and. When you reflect on the gospel readings, there's always this from Jesus. Do you see what I see? Do you hear what I hear? And someone sent this to me this week, and I just think it's a a beautiful thing. In each heart lies a Bethlehem, an inn where we must ultimately answer whether there is room or not. When we are Bethlehem bound, we experience our own advent in his We can no longer excuse ourselves by busily tending our sheep or our kingdoms. So just something to really think about in this holiday season.
0: And it's profound uh, for several reasons. And thank you for fitting that in. And I just am curious, how is that speaking to you today, Joy?
1: Well, let me tell you, my sheep are not the sheep I thought I was going to be tending to right
0: now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yes.
1: But... I do think what I'm doing right now is building the kingdom, and it's, it's helping me be a better version of who I hope to be. It's helping my children be better versions of who they hope to be. It's a way that we are able to embrace, and it really kind of brings us full circle back to where you know John and I started our married life in 1992 and the vows we took that day and what we're living today. And we just have been on a really strange path to get there.
0: <laughs> a super strange one, right? Yep. <laughs> but, oh, I just love it. because I'm so thankful that you would answer that question. Uh, because as I was listening to you say that it's helping you and helping your children, it's also helped the listeners and, and me uh, by you sharing your story, just having us all reflect on that and really think about what that could mean to us. But also just hearing how you're walking out this most recent chapter in this very intriguing journey of yours is very powerful and helping me at right when I needed it, which I knew was going to happen. <laughs> so, so I'm grateful. <laughs>
1: well, I will say this none of this would have been possible if John were not open to letting it happen either. You know, he very easily could have said, Nope, I'll figure this out on my own and I'm just going to stay put and so forth. And, um, the fact that his heart and his spirit was open to, okay, you know, that was, I did have one, con, actually I had a couple of conditions about him coming home. I would just share this. One is to not refer to me as his ex-wife. Uh, <laughs> and it's Fair. interesting. And I know a lot of people do that. And I told John, I've never referred to you as my ex. I've always referred to John as my former husband. Yeah. And here's why, you know, an ex has overdone out and- It's for the very situation we are in today that I'm able to do this and he's able to do this is because we have not had an ex mentality. We've had a former mentality and that's been a gift that we've been able to give each other.
0: That's really beautiful. Again, another lesson. And I am grateful for you to share it. Okay, Joy Kelly, I don't even want to do this, but are you ready for the last two questions? The standard ones I always ask?
1: You go, sister.
0: So the first one is if you could write a letter to yourself at any age or stage, what would you say? Well, I don't know if
1: anybody well, I'm sure people out there have seen the show This Is Us. Um I like binge watched that like within like three weeks. I had I was not a this is us person until, you know, it was over. And um was able to watch it. But uh Randall and Beth, one of the couples on that show, whenever something kind of difficult or challenging came up, and then they kind of look at each other and say, Okay worst case scenario, go, you know, and I've always kind of done that, but I would, I wish my younger self would have said, instead of being scared, instead of assuming the worst, instead of losing sleep and worrying and all those things, play it out. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen here? And I think if I had done that as a younger person, I would have slept a lot better, um, over many stages in life. But I think when you kind of play out, you know what I call the boogeyman factor it's always like that what gives us that uneasiness is the unknown okay, well play it out what are the worst case scenarios that could happen? and when you do that, like you realize, oh okay, I can deal with that i I can deal with that all right, it'll be okay. and I think if I could tell my younger self to always tell myself two things breathe, <laughs> it's the most important thing in the world i'm a I'm a deep breather i'm a I truly believe breathers are calm people. And um, I take three slow deep breaths every morning before I even get out of bed. And every night if I make it through, you know, I do that. And I also ask myself four questions every night before I go to bed. Am I joyful? Am I thankful? Am I hopeful? Am I peaceful? And I'm very blessed most days four out of four. When you're dealing with, you know, loss, whether it's a loss of a student, a staff member, uh, your mother, you know, that grieving that happens, it's uh, more like, oh, or one out of four. And then, you know, but it's my way of kind of giving myself a little bit of a pulse about where I am. Am I on the beam or off the beam? Am I ahead of the curve or below the curve? And those four questions kind of help me do that.
0: Powerful sense of self-awareness. And
1: really important.
0: Yeah. You can't manage yourself until you're aware. And I think so many of us fool ourselves Mm -hmm. (laughs) and ignore. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. How about this one? If listeners find themselves in a pit of fear or doubt, what could you say to help them rise up out of it?
1: Well, first breathe and let people in. I mean, I am, which I'm so glad you're asking this question because it gives me the chance to say how profoundly blessed I am with the family and the friends and the people who love me who are in my life. Because at every turn, I have had people supporting me and cheering me and loving me in the good times and bad, the sickness and health. And there's nothing that can replace that. Um, And so when you have people in your corner who are there for you no matter what, and you don't need a lot you know I especially to young people you think oh you know I need this vast group of friends no you don't no you don't if you have one or two genuinely honest to God goodness friends who love you with all your warts and all who care about you no matter what who are willing to say to you really is that what you're gonna wear today you know or (laughs) really that's where you're gonna put your energy today you know I mean that is just a tremendous gift but You have to let people in and you have to be willing to trust. And sometimes you're going to get burned, you know. But even just these last several months between mom and now with John, like I'll tell you, my siblings have been unbelievably um, great at checking in. I have a brother who's the most talented person on planet Earth. I mean, he can cook, he can paint, he can create, he can build, he can fix he can you name it he can do it and he's an unbelievable cook and so he's been bringing the meal about once a week to us and god love him because i think you know when the time comes that i'm not dealing with a crisis i might have to manufacture one so he'll still cook for me <laughs> 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 i don't know how many people out there have uh shrimp etouffee uh served last night but that, that's brought oh, wow last night Oh my gosh. It was delicious. And, and it's just pure love. It's just pure love, you know? And I, you know, my other siblings are so great about checking in or, Hey, let's try to get you out. Let's meet just for one drink quickly, you know, that kind of thing, which is, is great. And then, you know, my friends, you know, who've opened their hearts and their homes and their love to us to say we're here no matter what. And we're just so grateful for that.
0: It's really beautiful. And What I pulled from that is just don't lose sight of the people that are around you and lean into that. You know, it's too easy to become isolated. I'm sure, especially during a crisis situation. But allowing your heart to be open to all that is there and the gifts that are around you is really beautiful. And I do realize that for somebody
1: who every day, you know, I I, you know greet the bus and the drop-off line every morning and greet every kid when they come in and I'm so happy to see them and the staff and being in the classrooms and going to meetings and. Now I have this quiet little life where, you know, I try to keep things calm and peaceful. And when I massage John's feet to alleviate some pain and play some Christmas music for him and have candles and it's just a very different pace and a very different life, but both beautiful. But you do kind of, you know, I have to be a little careful not to become isolated because I'm, you know, so used to having just a, a different kind of life. But that, that'll come back to, you know, at another time. But this is where as I'm supposed to be right now.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that too, as I what I'm hearing right now is that you, it will serve you though. I mean, when you get back into that, whatever pace, if that's back in a school or if that's doing your wonderful leadership coaching and speaking that you are do for J costs and associates and on your own that, um, you know, that pace will come back that frenetic pace that you've lived because that's, that's a life of five kids and school leadership and all the things, but it's like a a gift of time and contemplation to you too, that I hope serves you well beyond this moment.
1: Yeah, it, it, it certainly does. And that's one thing I would say to people listening to is, you know, grow your circle, you know, whether that's your your immediate family, your in-laws, um, you know, my in-laws have been great, you know, all of John's family has flown here, they all live in California, they've all been here, John's 89 year old mother has been here, you know, and everybody has come to have their time with him and it's it's been a beautiful, wonderful thing. But you got to grow your circle and let people in. And I've just been very blessed by the people that have been placed in my life. And and I hope I can be that for other people as I kind of move through mine.
0: No hope. I know that to be true. That is for sure. There is no doubt about it. Well, Joy, I thank you so much for giving us so much of your beautiful story. I know that we really only uncovered some of it. And it's been profound for me. And I always know that the message will land right where... The listeners need it because there's a mission in there. I know they'll want to get in touch with you. Of course, listeners, we will link how to get a hold of Joy Kelly's co-authored book with Jimmy Casas, Handle with Care. But also, if they want to interact with you after this uh, podcast interview, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
1: I'm on Twitter, as it stands, at Joy, J-O-Y, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, 05, at Joy Kelly 05.
0: Wonderful. And we'll be sure to link that listeners joy. I pray all peace for you as you move into this silent night Advent time. And as you lovingly, beautifully continue to serve with your wonderful spirit. And just want to say one more time, how joyful this interview has made me and how grateful I am to have you not only on the podcast, but in my life I'm sending you so many blessings. Thank you, Sarah. Love you.